Welcome to another edition of Midnight Bash. I'm your host, Bilan Ackman from Warsaw, Poland. We have from Toronto, Ilir Pristine, independent Canadian filmmaker, Ross Guercho, New York City, financial data technology specialist, editor of Canadian Interiors Magazine and Building Magazine, Peter Sajak, also from Toronto. And today we're talking about dialogue. Our first question is, how do you guys approach dialogue? Who wants to take that question? I think you should, Alir. You're the filmmaker. You wrote a, you have a book full of scripts okay. you've written. I'm curious. I'm, I'm, I this sure topic do. is making me very curious to what your answers will be, Alir. So I want you to hit, hit the road running. The, so uh, the question was, how do, how do I approach dialogue? Or how, does, how do we approach dialogue? Was that the question, Bilan? How do you approach dialogue? Okay, so uh, I don't have any brilliant answers, but what I try to do when I'm writing dialogue is keep it, I mean, I guess it's just an aesthetic preference. I really like naturalistic dialogue, so I try to write it as one would talk for the most part, and when I'm writing, I always say it out loud when I'm writing, just to see how it sounds. It sounds one way in your head. It sounds way, very different when it comes out of your mouth. Um, and I, it's as simple as that. And then so I first start to go with the natural, what sounds natural, what sounds interesting. And then after I have kind of that, then I start putting in, or I start trying to put in sort of plot points, character development, uh, little details about their past lives and offhand comments. And things like that. And then I guess another approach I try to do is when I'm finished writing, if I, let's say I have three or four characters in a script, I try, and I do make a conscious effort. I don't, you know, execute, you know, whether I pull it off is another thing is I go through and like, okay, do these people sound too similar? And if I think they sound too similar, again, me writing and reading out loud to myself, and often I record it and listen to it back. If I think people sound too similar, I will start to just try to massage it just to bring out differences in people, however obvious or subtle, let's say. Um, so that's sort of a very rough approach, basic approach to how I do it. In my current guidelines for dramatic dialogue, I write that one of my rules is uh, characters talk at each other or past each other but not with each other. What do you think about that? Right. Yeah, I still, I think I know what you mean. And you sent me a written example. Yeah, I mean, I kind of get it. I, and I do that a little bit. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's every scene has to be like that. I think characters do talk to each other and do listen to each other just as often as they don't. Or, you know, the proverbial waiting to talk kind of thing. People don't listen. They wait till their, it's their turn to talk. Um, so I think that makes good dialogue, your approach, you know, talking around people or not at people. Um, but I don't think, like, you, you, you have to do that across the board. I mean, for flavor, for a bit of difference, for a plot point, for a character point, sure. But across the board, I don't... I don't know. I, I don't know if that would totally make sense a whole way through a film or even a book for that matter. Well, 
my students in the creative writing workshop, which is just wrapping up next week, tried this. And I was quite surprised how dramatic the dialogue exercises they produced were. There were many problems with what they wrote, like inconsistent time perspective, grammatical you know, errors, spelling errors. But the, the essence of what they wrote, trying it this way, with a few other rules, really did you know, create dramatic dialogue, right? which shouldn't be like the kind of dialogue we want in real life. You know, good real life dialogue seeks compromise. We want to understand each other. But if you actually try applying this framework, you'll see that in, in dramatic dialogue, everybody has an agenda and that's what they're focused on and that's what makes it exciting to watch. So I'll, I'll, I'll jump in at this and point, maybe if, if you don't mind, because I'm, I'm going to probably for the course of this uh, podcast and this, the topic of this conversation, I might be the guy on the, uh, on the outlier uh, spectrum, not quite agreeing with the, the basic premise even that's being put forward. Because, Bilan, I have to kind of say, I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't buy that people engage in the real world in dialogue to find a compromise. I don't actually think that that's true. Oddly, uh, I would probably quote uh, a guy whose dialogue I like. I just don't think it's real. Uh, but none of the none of the best dialogue in um, in, in uh, either film or, or, or uh, novel form is natural or realistic. Uh, but the guy I'm quoting is Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote uh, Fight Club and a whole bunch of other books. Um, and even though he didn't write the screenplay for the film. Uh, Jim Olms, I think, was the screenwriter for that. Uh, the same line appears in both the book and the film. And the line goes, uh, people, people don't, uh, I'm kind of butchering the quote, but it comes down to people don't actually talk to each other. They just wait for their turn to speak. And that's true right. everywhere in the real world and in creative writing. And in the real world, I I still think everyone has an agenda that they're pushing, even when they're engaging in a dialogue. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I just think that people don't like it when that is brought to their attention, when someone basically, uh, you know, calls them out for it and saying, You're, we're not actually engaging in a dialogue. We're just waiting to try and make our point and then hope the other person agrees with me. If they don't, oh, well, maybe I'll try to change their mind. Maybe I'll give up on them. Who knows? But real, real dialogue is one of the messiest things. So to answer your question, uh, how do we uh, approach dialogue? Uh, the question that you put in earlier was the first to answer. I'll answer it now from my side of the professional coin, keeping in mind that I'm a journalist, so I don't engage in creative writing. I'm not working in the minds of uh uh, characters that were my own creation. I'm working with real people's dialogue and I work with it all the time because I record interviews. Uh, and I don't know if anyone in, in the, on this panel has ever had to edit a transcript, a real live actual transcript. I do it a lot. It is horrible. Oof. It's one of the most pains. Oh my God. You yeah, it's one me. of the most painstaking, oh. uh, mind numbing, 
tedious jobs in my career is editing a transcript because it puts into uh, stark, absolute sharp relief the fact that human beings are sloppy dialogue people. We, we cannot speak in coherent sentences. Bjorn, you just alluded to that a minute ago. Uh, and it's true in, in every minute of every speaking day in the real world. We are sloppy. And when you try to edit a transcript, you look at how many verbal ticks, meaningless sidebars, uh, lost trains of thought that are then almost an emergency recoup to try and get back on track. It's, it's, it's a train wreck. It's insane. And so to answer the question, and, and I'm doing it right now, <laughs> listen to what I'm doing. I am proving my own point. I can't even get to my own point. That's me proving my own point. That dialogue is horrible. Let me stop you there. You are right. You're so right. The rules were edited for brevity. We want compromise, but we don't get it very often in real life. It's what we want. But dramatic dialogue in fiction, you're right. It's not like a transcript of an interview. It's focused, but it's not forced. And that's from Robert Fiercema. Still, you're making my point that people have this agenda and we don't like to be reminded of it. Yeah, no, I agree. And so I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with uh, dramatic dialogue in fiction where it's clear that there's an agenda to be pushed, either it be um, expository dialogue to push a key part of a story or uh, you know, or in another format where the dialogue is meant to reveal something about a character to then create tension and drama and, again, move the story forward. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think dialogue that comes across as trying to sound natural often comes across as sounding the most pointless. It's almost like, why am I reading this piece of dialogue if what the author is trying to do is make me believe that this is how real people speak? It's, a, it's annoying. Characters only say two things, who I am, what I want. Hmm, that's interesting. Kurt Vonnegut said, every character in every scene must want something. Okay. Can I actually ask a lyric question, getting back to his uh, experience writing for film? So you're... the. Your big film right now, Flory, doing the festival circuits and whatnot, is about a woman. So it's written from a woman's perspective. It was written by you, who last time I checked, is not a woman. So my question is, no. did you take into account in writing the, uh, the internal and external uh, narration or dialogue of the character Flory, did you take into account gender issues in how women speak because there is a difference or did you just think this is what this is the kind of character i would like to explore and therefore this is the kind of way i would think she would talk because the way you would talk in your mind and you were interested in exploring an internal struggle that this character who happened to be female was was pursuing so in, to put it another way, did you think it was kind of natural or did you actually uh, 
approach almost from a workshop perspective. That's How do uh, I write <clears throat> with a woman's tone or like, you know, write dialogue for a female character okay. as if Fair. she was a female? <laughs> you know, yeah, no, no, I got, so it's a really good question. Um, uh, two points. How am I going to keep this organized? Okay, so I'll say the first point and remind me, Bulan's second point about reading or writing dialogue. Um, I did not try. My original idea was, so the very the quick premise of the film is, Flory is a woman, is dating three men at the same time. The other men don't know of the other men. And she has to decide um, on choosing one or none or two of the three or what she's going to do with herself uh, regarding her romantic life. I originally, my original idea was a man is dating three women. Uh, I got a phone call from a friend of mine whose name is Flory. I got off the phone and said, hey, you know what? Why don't I change it? And it's a woman dating three guys. I think it'll be more interesting. You see it less often. Um, and let's go with that. So I had already started writing quite a bit. You know, I, I, I think I just put a placeholder name for a guy at the time. I maybe had five or ten pages or whatever at the time. You know, it was Jack. And I just put Flory's name there. So I did not, to answer your question, I did not write it specifically for a woman. I just was telling the story of one person dating three people. Why is she doing this? You find out about her past, her life. Um, so no, I didn't. I just wrote it as a character. Uh, and then after a couple of screenings, and I, I kid you not, literally like, Alir, how did you get so into the psyche of a woman? Man, you really know women. And if they knew anything, the, the, the only thing I don't know is women. Um, so, yeah, it was a really, really interesting experiment. And I think Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino, I read he did something similar for one of his, his films. He wrote it for a guy and he literally just changed the name, kept the same dialogue, and it, it became a woman's story or character. Um, so I guess my second point, bringing it, or Bulan hinted at it, I think the difference, and Pete said it too, is now what are we doing with the dialogue? Are we reading it off a page? Or are we hearing an actor speak those words? And those are, you know, even Pete said, oh, reading a novel's idea of natural dialogue is boring. Okay, sure, fair. Um, so I think there's a huge distinction, reading it or hearing somebody else's speak. I could have Flory and do it with a guy character and it would be a guy, obviously, as stupid as that sounds. So I think, I think you can just switch it because at the risk of sounding pretentious, we're all humans. We all have similar problems. You know, all, you know, somebody, somebody said something stupid like folk songs. What makes a folk song a folk song? It's a song written by folk, right? Humans. Um, so I think, you know, Odysseus could have been a woman. You know, he's instead of going back to Penelope, he's going back to uh, Brutus or whoever. Um, does that well, answer your question? Yeah, you're, you answered the question about your process, and okay, uh, it just now to me raises another point, and uh, it, it again echoes what I said earlier, where I think for the duration of this conversation, I'm going to be the outlier, saying I disagree. Uh, because I disagree. I disagree that uh, w with mm -hmm. the concept that you can literally just swap out a female character's name with a male character's name and the, the dialogue can remain the same. I mean, I'm not saying you can't do it. That's obviously a, uh, a, a highlight and replace 
button on your laptop, right? You just type in replace, uh, uh, you know, mm. Bob with Jane. Boom, the job is done, right? Okay, so I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying, I yeah, it I goes think deeper that than pretty, that. Yeah, of course. Uh, I think there are differences. I mean, it would be great once if you know if Elon jumps in on this this debate, but from and, a from a creative writing perspective. But I think that and, there is a difference in how men converse and how women converse. And I don't think you can just I, if you're doing it right anyway. I mean, again, I keep coaching this by saying you can do whatever you want these are your characters these are your creations you can make them be whatever you want and it's obvious that that's what tarantino does which is why what you just said as a subject as a as a uh, uh, example makes perfect sense because if you watch any tarantino film every line being said by um, samuel l jackson could be said by uma thurman and it's pretty obvious that they probably were at one point in the early drafts of the script tarantino as much as a guy as much as a, a writer whose dialogue, or at least whose you know whose script writing dialogue, I like, uh, I like it because I can see pretty clearly what he's trying to do. He's not trying to be naturalistic or realistic. He is pushing an agenda. His agenda is arguably gender is the least important quality of Flurry's character. You can't put any character into her position and have the film play out the way it did. You need to have someone who's equally indecisive to an almost Hamlet degree, equally neurotic, equally bored, either with life, ennui, or job. Yes, you can switch the gender, but you still need a particular kind of character. And coming to Tarantino, if you're thinking of the dialogue between John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson, and you look at that dialogue on a page, you're going to see that although they're talking about, on the surface, the quality of hamburgers, that's to inform the audience about a lot of details, their easygoing manner, their long association, the fact that he's been away for a long time. This informs the audience about their character. They're telling the audience who they are. And Tarantino is very good at that. I don't think that you could take Uma Thurman's character from Kill Bill and replace it with Samuel L. Jackson's character um, from they're two different characters, two but different the basic characters. constructs behind the characters are so similar and they are so Tarantino-esque. They are drawn out of the playbook of how Tarantino views characters, what their purpose is, and then how he puts them on the stage, which translates to the screen. I think you, you yeah, you're right. You couldn't have uh, uh, Vincent Vega and uh, uh, what was, what was Mia? No, no, that's Pulp Fiction. We're comparing films here. You said Uma Thurman from Kill Bill. What was her character's name in Kill Bill? The Bride. Sure, we'll call her The Bride. You see, you can't have the Vincent bride. Vega, who is John Travolta from Pulp Fiction, and swap that with The Bride from Kill Bill, because I agree, there's two different storylines going on. But if you just extracted their dialogue from parts of their individual movies and just put them on the page side by side and took the characters' names off the, the page... I would challenge you to figure out who's who. 
obviously unless you had a, mem- a photographic memory of the of the screenplays from each film. But my point, my point is the same. My point is Tarantino writes the majority of his characters' dialogues all the same, whether they are female or male. And at first, I was like, cool. Right, because we when we sit down and we start watching a Tarantino film, we buy in to his agenda. His agenda is, I want to explore cool. Everything here is about cool. I'm not saying that's the only thing. I'm saying that that's a primary driver, and in his mind, male, female doesn't matter. It's all about the cool. But then I now am starting to think, well, there's an inauthentic there's an inauthenticity to that if what he is purporting to do is reflect natural everyday dialogue because there's nothing natural about how the people speak in his films well he's not yeah it's nothing it's not natural the thing is i don't want to write like tarantino i want i play a game when i'm writing dialogue how long a dialogue can i run without any kind of cues to indicate who's speaking because when I'm writing a short story, I don't have the convenience of the, the script, which identifies who is speaking by naming them in front of each line. I can say he said, she said. I can say John said. Um, I, I can indicate in a variety of ways. Or I can choose not to. And if I can convey their characters and their agendas who they are and what they want without those additional pieces of text, I think I'm doing it. So I, I apologize if I've taken this mm. off course. If you had a different place you wanted to be this conversation to be going in for your students. This is exactly well, where then I, I put the question be. back to you because Absolutely. how do you address gender bias when the issue of dialogue comes up for your creative writing students because to me you know what i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna jump in for one second pete i think again i'll speak for myself and my experience again i think it comes down to the uh are you reading it or are you hearing it and i think you know and i you know the actress in my film floor was just you know really i mean both of them were very good i got very lucky and i gave them stuff and they just did a great job and they made it really if not the if the words weren't feminine, the delivery was feminine, the vulnerability, the softness, um, the hardness, um, I think they really, you know, they bring those words out and they give it a gender, obviously, and you're seeing visually a woman speak the word. So automatically you assume it's a woman because it is. Now reading it off the page is a different thing. Because then you can really fall into caricature a lot easier, I'm thinking. Um, You know, let's say if, okay, this is a terrible example for female dialogue. But if I'm reading, if I'm reading Dashiell Hammett, or no, Raymond Chandler, which I just reread a couple months ago. You know, a lot of his dialogue is very, very snappy, very, very clever. And the female dialogue is very, it's, the male is as well, but the female is even more of a caricature. You know, maybe they're, 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 they're bright only in their sinister motives as opposed to just bright human beings. Um, and reading it is a lot harder because you have to put it in the voice, whereas an actor or an actress is doing it for you. 
and they're delivering it for you and you don't really have to interpret it. The actor's done 70% of the interpretation and you, the audience member, brings the other 30% in there, let's say, whatever that number is. Whereas with dialogue, reading it from the page, you have to do all the work and say, sure, do I buy but... this or do I not buy this? Where yeah, an okay, so there, is a you, right there, person, you right? finish they're the sentence it. almost with the word I was going to jump in with. And I agree on that point that the, the purpose of an actor is to sell the dialogue. But the dialogue itself as a product is put into question for the purpose of this conversation in my mind. Because what your actress was doing was selling to the audience the thoughts of a Lear pristine and yet cloaking it in the guise of this, these would be the thoughts of a woman going through these uh, romantic turbulations. But to the realistic point of the fact that you, Alir, wrote those words on the page and then handed them to a woman and say, read this, and because this is what I think a woman would be thinking or, or speaking, right? And this issue of gender bias comes in because my question is, not so much a question, but my, my challenge is, do you think any of your dialogue components could have been done better if you actually just gave your, like, like a dialogue means two people. So you got two people in the scene, and I remember the scenes in Flory where it was Flory and her friend and, and they're, they're talking, you know, working through the problems. You wrote yeah. the, the, the back and forth. So you wrote two female characters and dialogue from two female characters' minds and tried to, you know, present it as this is what I think a woman would be thinking in this, in this uh, state. Did you think maybe I'm going to try and do an experiment where I just tell the, the actresses, okay, this is the point where Flory is. She needs to figure out the guy situation. How would you deal with this? Go and let them, in essence, do it in a real, in a real way, just with the subject they've been handed, which is one of you is dating three guys and you, you're conflicted and you need to figure out what do you do. And, but then you step back. So now you, you, become, you don't become a writer. You become almost an anthropologist, right, where you're watching these two people talk and you record it, and then maybe change it and clean it up. But really, you're presenting an honest female dialogue. Did you think about doing that? I understand if you didn't, because you want to be in control. You're selling, you're, you're telling your story, and I, I get that. We, I just, this whole, the only reason this is in my head is because, you know, Bilant wants us to, uh, or is asking us, how do we approach dialogue? I always felt that one of the biggest problems with dialogue that purports to be something it isn't is how can one person realistically speak two minds well because you contain multitudes pete the whole point of uh i want men to be able to write men and women i want women to be able to write men and women i want trans writers to write straight characters i want straight characters to write bisexual characters i want a writer to be free to write any damn character they need to tell the story that they need to get out. And let's remember that when the girls in Flory had a better way to do it, Elir was receptive and let them do it differently. And I think some of those differences made a huge impact on the femininity that okay, Elir so, was so trying to convey through his story. So actually, let me, uh, let me interrupt and I'll answer one of your questions relatively quickly. Did I say, okay, what does a woman think? What would a woman think here? Yeah, I mean, now, at the beginning, when I said, oh, I started writing it from a male point of view and I just changed the name to Flory, I mean, I'm, I'm being very reductive. I mean, it, you know, I finessed it more than that. I didn't just simply change the name, um, for one, number one. 
Uh, number two, what I did, instead of thinking about gender bias, as stupid as it sounds, I'm like, okay, I have a character. The character happens to be a female. And before she's a female, she's a human, as stupid as that sounds. So my character here just happens to be a female with a problem. The same way the guy is a character with a problem. So did I bring, I did, so I didn't look at it like, what would a woman say only, only if, you know, cause sometimes, you know, you have a, a discussion with actors. Oh, Alir, the character, you know, I remember one idiotic argument. He's like, no, I would say mom. I was like, I prefer mother, but nobody would say mother. You only say mom. I'm like, okay, well you have a limited brain. What do you want me to say? So, you know, I don't believe that a woman would only say this and never say this. Okay, percentages, fine. Women have certain ways of talking. Sure. But I always just approach it. Here's a character with a dilemma. She happens to be female. What do I think she would say, do, and or react? And when, you know, writing two women back and forth, you know, I just, again, two characters who happen to be females. There's a, there's a conflict. One is trying to control the other. What do I perceive them to be saying? And then again, too, what Bulan was saying, and again, too, again, my point, it's a lot different when an actor delivers dialogue and you're reading the dialogue. It's just really, the more I think about it, it's huge. Again, very often, Alir, can I change this line? Okay, let's hear it. You know what? Way better. Let's use it. So then they can put that little bit of A, themselves in it, B, a little more womanliness in it. And it's, you know, so there's a bit of a give and take. I mean, for the most part, I had a good idea what I wanted. But you keep yourself open, right? Um, yeah, to sort of, so I guess reiterate, I didn't, you know, character first, gender second. Gender really can be an accident even too, in many ways. So what, what, I, what I think, I think, I think dialogue is not necessarily gender specific. I think, I think, um, we think as rational, reasonable human beings, you know, obviously with, uh, with emotion. And uh, there's a certain cogency in, in dialogue when, when uh, you know, two people are reasoning things out. It doesn't necessarily mean that that reasoning is coming from a male or a female brain. And, and the other thing, I think, I think that, um, you know, the more natural like in terms of the creative process, if if you listen to people talking, you know that's the old standby. You you sit on a on a patio at a coffee shop or a restaurant. You you listen to the people having a dialogue at the tables next to you. You know that's uh, inspirational for for your own dialogue. You know that the the creative uh, in the creative process. But try to write that stuff down. Pete's right. Uh, it's an exercise well, that George Carlin, I believe, recommended. Or could have been Elmore Leonard, actually, in a video. Write it down. I, I and you'll see how yeah, write it down. dramatic and undialogue-like natural dialogue. But, but again, why do we listen to our friends talk to us? Delivery. Right? Like, Oh, you picked your nose today. Wonderful. But the delivery keeps you interested. Right? The story is pretty mundane. I mean, would you watch or read that dialogue? I don't know. Of Ross, you know, buying bananas at the grocery store. Don't ask what he does with the bananas. <laughs> 
But, but you know, he tells you the story of how he buys the bananas. In real life, okay, I'm not going to call it captivating, but you're interested. Your attention is there. Right? So I think, again, execution, performance, delivery elevates things or can bring things down too, of course. I think, I think it involves the, um, the whole speech process itself. I mean, you have a thought and, you know, how are you going to express that thought? You know, and, th- and that, that interval between your thought and the actual word that is stated. You know, I, I, at one point I was, I was actually thinking of uh, exploring that further in film. You know, where it's not necessarily, like, if, if you notice, like, actors and, and some, especially uh, in television productions, the dialogue is, is really quick. It's quick banter. It's back and forth. But there's, um, that's not necessarily reflective of what's actually happening in reality. I mean, it's good, it's good for, you know, being audible, you know, clear, uh, you know, consistent, you know, tone and so on and so forth for the viewer who's watching the television show to, you know, to, to get pretty much everything that's being said. But is it really reflective of, of uh, reality? You know, like if you listen to us talking here now, I mean, it's spontaneous. There's there's a lot of pause, a lot of uh, reflection. There there isn't really, um, you know, that constant back and forth. You know, in some films, you 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 actually see that. You know, you see people, you know, try to add or actors try to add idiosyncrasy in in their dialogue, and. Um, you know, I, I think that's something else that that needs to be considered in in uh, you know in the creative process, thing is, Ross, and not just not just the the meaning of it as well. Ross, if we followed you around, which would be fun for a week, there'd be a lot of grocery stores and recorded everything you said and did. There would be moments where your character was revealed more than others and if we cut out all the other stuff that didn't reveal character didn't tell us who you are and what you want we would approach something close to but not exactly like good dramatic dialogue even this recording Mm -hmm. that people are going to hear it's going to be edited and because it's going to be edited it's going to be a best version of this spontaneous conversation. There's going to be a compression. And good dramatic dialogue has a high degree of compression. You're getting a lot of character development, story development, who I am, what I want in okay, the but... dialogue. It's not supposed to be like real life. It's okay, but let, let, let me jump in here because while you know, I more or less agree with what you're saying, to me, the, there's a, a significant structural difference. What you just described is what I would call documentary as opposed to dramatic writing. A documentarian who follows someone around all day for 24 hours to reveal what this person's about and then they just edit it out. They edit out the crap get down to the nitty-gritty as you just described to reveal the character okay that's good craftsmanship but you are at the mercy of trying to discover something from someone's 
aimless ramblings for a day or a week or a year. Whereas, unless I'm wrong, uh, if you are the if you are God in the universe you've created for your fiction and you just you create the characters out of the dirt and make them do your will well you don't have to follow someone around for a day you write what you want this character to say isn't that the foundational difference between creative writing fictional writing and documentary recording it's 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 not that simple because first of all that's why i said it would be close to good dramatic dialogue but it wouldn't be good dramatic dialogue. You're absolutely right. That's the documentary style. And I really like those documentaries where the interviewer is completely absent. I mean, it's just the people, the, the setting, their story, them talking, doing things. It, I find it amazing the way some documentarians can escape themselves, apparently, from the final product and not be there to except for the fact that we all know that they are there because there's a camera there, right? But the second thing is, when I'm in my writing process, it's a lie. I know that I'm telling a lie, and that's what the story is, and it's a kind of lie. You know, I'm making it up. But the experience of it is I'm with these characters and trying to catch what they're saying. I don't feel like I'm a puppet master, but rather I create a character and watch them behave. And I love that moment in a process of creative writing when the characters kind of take over and start to behave like separate identities. And that's why I think Ilya can write women because he knows a lot of women. Like when, when I write a woman, because you asked me about the difference between writing men and women, I can't write authentically in my mind from within the interior life of a woman, because I've never been a woman, but I can write the way I perceive women from the outside and hope that my observation and perception in some way reveals those underlying character traits that are necessary to tell this story. Because in Flory's case, you needed somebody who was indecisive and neurotic. That's, those are Flory's key qualities aside from you know her her overwhelming guilt she feels very guilty um, not to give away the plot for people who haven't seen the movie yet um, those are the most important character traits of Flory, not the fact that she's a woman here's my current guidelines for dramatic dialogue characters talk at each other or past each other but not with each other good dramatic dialogue seeks conflict good real life dialogue seeks compromise we this is what we want it's not what we get pete's right there's a compression here in the rules for brevity three behind every good line of dialogue is an unmet need or want from my old rules characters only say who i am what i want characters are opaque to themselves and characters abandon dialogues they do okay, not so finish if them. i can ask these are guidelines so these are things that your students should aspire to. Should they should yes. work towards creating characters that speak at each other, not with each other? Or are you just making an observation that that's the real world of how dialogue works? Be aware of it and use it to your advantage. Student, go now and populate the page. 
No, on, <laughs> only only right. for the purposes of good dramatic dialogue because I've studied dialogue from a variety of perspectives. I've looked at a lot of different writers' approaches and I have condensed for myself so that I understand these rules. They're guidelines. Obviously, people can break them. Some of the best writers break all of them except the one about uh, characters wanting something. But I find that for my fiction, these help me to write dialogue that tells a story. It's not just something happening somewhere to someone. Okay, so I'm I'm kind of stuck on that first couple mm-hmm. items of of guideline because you're are you saying that a writer should be aware that the purpose of a character's dialogue is not to just speak with someone but to speak at them because they want something like you just you said later on in the guidelines all characters want something so uh, is that is that what you try to your students to be clear about, to not waste their time writing dialogue of people just talking with each other, but it, it serves no purpose or agenda? Is that what that first part is about? Or It can't just... Good dramatic dialogue cannot just be shooting the breeze. The golden rule for me is to respect my so audience. So to be clear, time. you don't want dramatic dialogue to reflect real dialogue in any way so you don't want drama or fiction to reflect real life it's naturalistic not natural it's in the words of robert versima dialogue is not a conversation it's not a monologue it's focused but not forced and it's interactive yeah but that doesn't really i mean that that's a nice uh soundbite but that doesn't really address what i'm talking about the part about it natural, naturalistic, but not natural. That's the closest thing to what I'm trying to figure out what you're, what you're telling your students to do. Because that makes, that makes sense. Naturalistic means it doesn't sound like it came off the page of a textbook where it's, there's a formal writing process to the essay and sen- sentence structure and all that, none of which sounds natural in everyday parlance. But naturalistic sounds as if someone could actually say this and sound realistic. Okay, that I get. That I get. You said it best already. When you're transcribing interviews, it's a pain and a chore, and there's all these verbal tics, gaps, pauses. It's not something that you would pay money to see in a theater. Ilir would probably leave in the first 10 minutes. Ilir so, le- <laughs> leaves in the first 10 if minutes. If it's not written by me, of course I would leave in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> so... Yeah. We're not not talking about dialogue in real life. We're talking about the kinds of dialogue, dramatic, good dramatic dialogue in fiction, any genre, video, film, stories. Which brings me to my uh, second big question. Whose dialogue do you appreciate and why? Because I bet after this podcast, if you go back, with the rules that I've written down and examine that dialogue, you're going to see that it jives. For half a second, you sounded like a televangelist right there. If you take what I'm giving, the the holy water I'm giving you, (laughs) go back to your lives and preach. (laughs) 
So, mm-hmm. okay, so hold on. You're saying you don't want to watch something where people are just, or read something where people are just shooting the breeze. Can you give an example of what you perceive, like, or what you conceive as, oh, just shooting the breeze and not worth me listening or watching That's or reading? That's the thing. The, 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 I think the best example I could imagine of bad dramatic dialogue, so dialogue which is kind of like what people would say in real life is the kind of pointless meandering dialogue that you might have found in that last Transformers movie that everybody tries to forget happened where there were like three different competing storylines and Mark Wahlberg running around there was a lot of pointless dialogue that went nowhere it's disappointing you know all the stuff you love whether it's uh, the deer hunter or um Princess Mononoke, or Kill Bill, or you know, even Star Wars. If you watch a space opera like Star Wars, you're going to see that the good dramatic dialogue. There's not one piece of good dramatic rules. dialogue in any Star Wars movie. <laughs> That's part of the appeal, <laughs> in a weird way. Uh, are you see? Aren't you a little short to be a stormtrooper? Right. And and, uh. and and does he – but here's the thing. Does he directly materially address that? Oh, I'm not a stormtrooper. No. He says the uniform. And he, and, and he says, my name is Luke Skywalker. I'm here with Ben Kenobi. We're here to rescue you. Like obviously they're, they're coming at each other cross purposes. In fact, one of the games I like to play is how close to the wind can characters get because, you know, straight up – um, oppositional dialogue is highly confrontational. But if they're completely in line with each other, it's boring. So how close can you get to that parallel line and still have mystery and tension? And I think that the Before Sunrise trilogy is the one that gets... Well, I was going to bring that up. ...gets right. really close. But if you watch those movies again with my rules, you're going to see that it still fits... Well, it was funny because I was going to bring up those films. I really, really, really love those movies. Um, because no, they're they not. Are just they're shooting not the shooting they're not. In a lot they're of times, nothing yes, more of an agenda than I can see. I, well, <laughs> they are. Okay, can I finish? So you, you, so you, they're watching it. You're watching it. They're shooting the breeze, but it's very naturalistic dialogue. They're revealing character. They're telling stories about themselves to each other, but throughout the film there's little time crunches they put on questions raised that push it forward along but and it's just really subtle and really well done so it's not just random shooting the breeze it's a really structured loosely structured shooting the breeze there's just enough time crunch and forward movement going and uh you know, uh, conflict and is are we going to resolve this and how will we resolve this relationship or whatever to me, that's just the perfect fucking dialogue is, movie, because you get that natural, you get that naturalistic Richard, feeling, you get the great dialogue, so here, yeah. here, here, you get the great performances. Yeah, I the mean, the guy, you know, the guy is well known, a, amazing for uh, being able to write movies where the stakes are extremely low, like in Dazed and Confused. Mm-hmm. Biggest problem: Is he going to go to the Aerosmith concert? Is he going to ditch football? I mean. But 
I bet you if you watch it again, like, or before sunrise again, not a word comes out of anybody's yeah, mouth that absolutely. doesn't tell you who absolutely. they are or what they want. I 100% agree with that. Not a word. Not and a word. Alir, I am sure. as big a fan sure. of that trilogy as you are. But I'm a big fan because it, to me, reflects what I think everyone quietly wants, which is to to be shown what they think uh, a perfect magical situation could be. Of course, it will never be like that in real life. There's nothing real. There's not there's naturalistic. Yes. But realistic. No, there's nothing realistic about any of those three movies. Maybe a little more by the last one before midnight. But the, definitely before sunrise, which is the best of the three, is you're sitting there thinking, this is what I wish would happen to me. It's a fantasy. And it perfectly reflects the best dialogue is a reflection of fantasy dialogue, meaning the kind of shit you wish you could say. It's like if I could say that sentence back, like 10 minutes later, you think, fuck, if I had that moment back, I would say it differently. And this is how I would say it. I would say it as if I was a writer. I would say it as if I had the magic ability to edit on the spot and make myself sound awesome. And to answer Bulant's question, to step, step back and answer his question, the dialogue I, and the writers who write it, the ones I like the best, are the ones that are exactly that. They reflect to me what I wish I could say in real life. So guys like, uh, guys like David Mamet, you know, guys who or uh, Hemingway or some of these guys that where their stuff sounds natural, sounds realistic, but it's not because in no situation could you say something as tight, as powerful, as succinct, as a, a, a punch to the solar plexus of, of delivery as those guys can. But guess what? No one can. No one in the real world can speak like that in the moment like that. That's the, the, that's the fantasy and the power of, of narrative. Well, you, I don't think you talk to Bulan Ackman often enough, Pete, because I can tell you, talking to him, really? he's very often how, like how that. Often, how Maybe often he's just an extra Synergy. Uh, Synergy. Uh, uh, second place, a set of steak knives. You want to see third place? <laughs> I swear to God, there's not one time where I, I talk to Bulan I don't come away with two golden sentences. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah, two golden uh, sentences. It's two and other people like like a that day. Too. Ross, <laughs> like, for that matter. Whereas there's there's literally eighteen hundred golden sentences in ninety minutes <laughs> of uh, Glengarry Glen Ross. That's my point. That there is like oh every every moment of e- each character's yeah. soliloquy as it goes back and forth because it's not a dialogue; it's individual speeches in Before Sunrise. Each one of those are are nuggets. You're like, God, that is like. I wish I could say that. That's why I'm burning. You know, this is where you start to absorb and quote back, as we've done a million times with lines from uh, Fight Club, for instance. Right. But that in the real world, you get one out of like maybe a day and a day of 24 hours of nonstop verbal diarrhea. So be a documentarian. As I said at the very beginning, try editing that transcript. You'd want to uh, start playing the deer hunter game and put the (laughs) put the gun in your mouth. Well, I'd like to know uh, which writers or filmmakers uh, Ross really appreciates. But before that, I just need to say, when it comes to The Deer Hunter, you should watch it again. It's a different movie because it's the same movie, but you have changed. Or maybe I have changed. Okay. Again. Okay. And... 
There was something else, but it's okay. Ross, what about you? Uh, what filmmakers did I admire? Hmm. Because I have David Mamet's uh, writing in restaurants. That's a good slim book. It's really great. Oh, I remember now. Even Ernest Hemingway doesn't speak like Ernest Hemingway writes. That's just to summarize what Pete was saying, because I agree with him. Yeah, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, In terms of dialogue, wow, that's a really good question. I don't know. There's so many different filmmakers that come to mind. Think of Kevin Smith. What did you think of uh, his first movie, Clerks? Yeah, that was a good movie. I mean, it was a good movie. Uh, Kevin Smith overall is a good director. Um, is he my favorite? No. For dialogue, wow, no. That means I don't you think do so. Have a favorite director for dialogue. Or a favorite writer, maybe. Well, I never... You know, I never really, I never really thought of it in those terms, to be honest. You know, because for me, it's the whole package. It's not just a but dialogue. But for some writers, dialogue really does stand out. But like, uh, I uh, hate uh, Cormac oh McCarthy. God, I hate Cormac McCarthy. It's funny. Well, William Gibson. <laughs> well, okay, I, okay, I hate. Okay, why? Why so, do you hate him then? Just, I was thinking, how am I going to get through a book that is so, uh, so much a guy's you have to you have to take this is what it felt like it felt like he was telling me the, the the reader you have to take what i'm giving you whether you like it or not that's my power over you and i'm sorry i i, I need a little more than that well maybe it's a different book i have the hardcover in my hands right now and the first period appears on the first page, the first sentence is when he woke in the woods in the dark and the cold of the night, he'd reach out to touch the child sleeping beside him, period. So maybe you're thinking of uh, maybe. No Country for Old Men? Or uh, maybe, Blood, maybe Blood that was Meridian? Maybe the last 18 pages the, of the book? The reality of you whether might, it was so, actually 18 pages or not is not what I'm trying to point out. It's That's the impression. The impression was... Here's a guy who, because, okay, I'm exaggerating okay. for dramatic effect. Look at that. <laughs> dramatic effect. Obviously, he's not going to go 18 pages without a period unless this was a piece of uh, uh, performance art, which I don't think he was trying to do that. The point is, though, is that he went a long way with really awkward, I have to believe intentionally, awkwardly structured sentences that were very difficult to ease into and, and be drawn into the character in the story. It was more about uh, a style and a, and a delivery that was, I'm going to show you what you have to look forward to for the next 300 pages, which is painful. Pain. In fact, I'm making it sound better. I'm making him sound brilliant. When to me so, as the reader, I was like, this is bad writing. Are are, are you sure you're talking about? No, I'm not 100 sure, but I am sure about I am sure about Cormac McCarthy because I gave him a go and that was my impression, and that, I put it down and said, "No, sir." Okay. Okay. So he's well, no. not okay, someone so you admire. The dialogue, dialogue question. Maybe there's a piece of dialogue in there that's nice. For as a writer, as me wanting to get into that book, it was impenetrable in his style. So I don't know about Cormac McCarthy's dialogue. 
But if we're talking, if, if we can look at the films as any representation well, of he... the book. So for instance, and that's an interesting experiment right there, right? Like uh, Tarantino adapted an Elmer Leonard book, two guys in their own right, good at dialogue. Uh, and clearly Tarantino was able to adapt uh, Elmer Leonard well enough in the film, film versions of, uh, of uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross or the film version of Glengarry Glenn Ross. Brilliant. Captures the dialogue. Uh, Chuck Palahniuk wrote Fight Club. The film version captured the dialogue. So if, if the film versions of Cormac McCarthy's books are any indication, no, I would not consider him a great dialogue writer. There's not a, there's like no dialogue in the road in the movie. I've, I've opened I've opened the road to a random page and it turned on page 140 of the hardback edition and uh, there's are you trying dialogue. to uh, can I read a little bit me? to you like are you are you trying to change my mind it tight it's is not tight. a synonym for good <laughs> It's compressed. But it is a synonym for seduction. You won't get all of the nuance because you don't know the characters, but you can already start to get something just from the words, not knowing anything else. Okay. I don't know. You don't remember. I ate just now. Do you want to eat with us? I don't know. You don't know? Eat what? Maybe some beef stew with crackers and coffee. What do I have to do? Tell us where the world went. What? You don't have to do anything. Can you walk okay? I can walk. He looked down at the boy. Are you a little boy? He said. The boy looked at his father. What does he look like? His father said. I don't know. I can't see good. Can you see me? I can see someone's there. Good. We need to get going. He looked at the boy. Don't hold his hand, he said. He can't see. Don't hold his hand. Let's go. Where are we going? The old man said. We're going to eat. He's compressed. I mean, he's maybe not to everyone's taste, but man, like, I'm afraid of this book, you know? (laughs) As a father, it gives me chills. It's a very upsetting book. (laughs) Right. Okay. Oh, delivery was good too. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, and he doesn't even use punctuation I mean, like uh, quotation marks. He thinks they mess up the page. I wonder. Maybe he's. Does Shakespeare write his dialogue to be? I guess Shakespeare is a good example. Shakespeare is writing his dialogue to be said out loud, to be read out loud. Is Cormac McCarthy? or Raymond Chandler, or Margaret Atwood, writing her dialogue to be read out loud. I wonder if they're... Using well, honestly, I think they all are. Or if they're reading... Because it's a okay. script. That's books, what they would all love. Books are not I'm the sure. finished product. They're a script. The final product is in the mind of the reader. And you're, you're feeding them just enough for them to run with it. You don't want to be you know, too tight because then they don't have anything to contribute. You know, like, you know, with Ross and his Manila question, or no, sorry, not Ross. He was talking about a couch. But one of my students had this question about a Manila envelope. Should it be dark Manila, light Manila? And I said, just Manila. (laughs) It's enough. 
they, they'll decide, you know. Manila is enough. You know, give the writer, give the reader enough because the reader is the writer, the final writer, you know. Actually, can I interject and go sure. off topic? Because uh, I'd like to ask Ross something because it, it came out, I mean, I mean, I guess you're as smart as Lou Reed. Lou Reed, there's a song and the lyric is something, something, something between thought and expression. So you're saying you'd like, you would, you were thinking of playing with an idea dialogue or film wise of showing the interval between thought and expression. Can you go a little deeper into that? I mean, is it gestural? Is it just silence? I mean, cause there's a lot of Bergman has a lot of silence between characters where American films, you know, there's not so much silence. People are always talking or doing something as opposed to like, you know, Bergman, people are staring out the window for 20 seconds with no answers. So yeah, Ross, between thought and expression, what would like, what would be an example or a thought or a idea you had? Well, I'd like to share with you, but since you're a filmmaker, um, I need to copyright my material first before well, sharing it. On, on, on the record, I will not steal anything. <laughs> no, kidding aside, it's, uh, it's pretty complicated. Uh, it's more than just silence. I think, you know, like I listen to myself talk sometimes and Alir, you, you say to me, you know, you're the slowest, fastest thinker I know. At least you're saying you're a or the, the slowest, fastest guy I know. Something like that, right? And, um, you know, I just. Yeah, but. But there's there's something there. Now, I'm not sure if it's, uh, you know, knowing multiple languages and you know, like um, the way you pronounce words in a different language. And when you say it in English, you know, there's sort of an extension of that pronunciation. Or, you know, there's that kind of lingering, you know, within the word itself or, um, or, or not quite stating the word as explicitly as, as or audible as one might expect. And and that in of itself sort of kind of reflects like the, you know, the in between, you know, the thought and the the expression of the word. But 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 there's there's much more to it. And it, it, like in film, how do you capture that? I mean, is it is it silence or is it the way you the way you say your words? Um. Yeah, it's it it, it can get. I mean, there's there's a lot to explore and to unpack. In, in doing something like that. I mean, I guess, you know, like when you see Robert De Niro, taxi driver, you talking to me and he's looking at the mirror, you know, there's like this crazy thought in his head and the way he's expressing it. It's not so much between the word and, and his thought, but, you know, there's, there's that, that, that layered meaning, the way he delivers that line, the way, he, the way he stands there, the way he looks you know, it's it's just it's crazy. You know, obviously you you see him. He looks, you know, like very bewildering. But he, he kind of had that that kind of take right. in his acting, like in in Mean Streets. If you you know, if you see him in Mean Streets, he's he's kind of like the 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 crazy well, Ross, guy. He's still in that monologue. So, well, technically, it's a dialogue with one person, right? Because we want to avoid monologuing, right? But he's still only mm -hmm. telling you two things. If you if you analyze that, uh, are you talking to me? He's telling you that the character is 
unbalanced on the edge of some kind of loss of control and he's telling you what he wants respect he's saying i'm get i'm unhinged i want mm. respect i'm unhinged i want respect that's everything that he says in you know in terms of actual meaning regardless of the words he chooses sure well it was more not an example of a dialogue per se but of um you know that um you know the thought okay, Russ, let me ask you a question then. The word, when you're when you know, you're in the in when you're in the local corner store and you've got two boxes of washing powder in your hands trying to decide which one to buy the cost who are tried you to arguing with them. <laughs> the the point is good the point is dialogue <laughs> is possible with a single character okay you know, and we're and we're after good dramatic sure. dialogue. I mean, you know, Flat one of the crazy things that I do in my process, I believe <laughs> that in the in the right, I could tell it. You know, the, I, you know I'm, I, oh, I'm, 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 I want to tell you guys, I want to tell you guys a little secret. Okay, one of the things you're doing, you're crazy you're things you're doing. You're not process. helping. Um. Uh, <laughs> yeah uh i play a game it's just a. it's pretend it's make-believe it's not true okay but i believe that i had a twin in the womb that i absorbed okay and it and and my twin was actually more talented than me and just some of his brain cells reside in the upper right back of my head and he just drives me to live the life that he wants. So when I write dialogue, I'm, you know, writing against okay. him. See, but that's your, that's to your point that than you can I have am. good dialogue with only right. one character. No. Hmm. That's to my point that writers will do all kinds of odd things in order to get good dramatic dialogue. They will imagine a twin they absorbed in the womb. They will talk it out on both sides, which if you don't know what somebody is doing, if you don't know that they're writing dialogue, if you were just like a fly on the wall, it would look really weird. You know, think about it. Think about yourself sitting there and saying both sides of uh, having an argument, in other words, with two characters. Well, I mean, you reading that Cormac McCarthy. Somebody doesn't know what you're minus doing. Minus the odd listening said to that. or the old man said, you could hear two people talking. I mean, it's really well done. And actually, too, on another feature script I wrote, I said, you know what? Let me record yes. it. So I read the whole thing. I read all the characters, recorded on my phone, and listened back to it. I'm like, oh, this is pretty good. And it worked. And again, I guess to the point, like, you know, I tried to change characters so they don't all sound the same or sound like me or whatever. But yeah, it can be done. I mean, you just did it, right? I mean, some spooky, yeah, and some spooky things come out when you're writing good dramatic dialogue. I mean, Walt Whitman was the one who said, I contain multitudes. And he meant something else, perhaps, but I often return to that idea that we have many people inside <laughs> us, and we just have to let them come out and play. 
Wow. One of the best ad-libbed uh, lines in a movie. Yep. I, I didn't realize that was ad-libbed. The whole th- Yep. What that about the whole, clinking of the, thing. of the bottles? Warriors. That too. Hey, warriors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my the whole God. Thing. <laughs> he, he's like, he he's like, like, um, like another version of Getty <laughs> Lee almost. I'd yeah. argue, though, if, if that's your idea of one of the Isn't best actors, I mean, I'd have to put Life of Brian I mean, you see, he, in a he, he, second place. A little bit, yeah. The, ver- the, the very end. But we didn't have the fish. Okay, which line? That was Eric Idle, I think. One of the Monty's. At the very, <laughs> he's like, he's totally off the cuff. As they were recording the, the line, he just says that at the end. And it stuck and made for the, literally the funniest part of the funniest movie. <laughs> one of the funniest movies of all time. But we didn't have the fish. Was that the, oh, the meaning, meaning of life? Yeah, that, sorry, wasn't life. that the Brian, meaning, meaning of, of life? life? My mistake. Meaning of life. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fun fact. Um, uh, George Harrison. Life of Brian was bankrolled by, among other celebrities, uh, Pink Floyd. And yeah. And when you look at ad lib dialogue, it's a good point to consider. I bet you that it will also follow uh, my rules. Because in Apocalypse Now, because Francis Ford Coppola had apparently discovered marijuana and he was locked in a shed writing rewrites. On the day when the boat was supposed to land uh, and Dennis Hopper comes out, he literally had no script for that day and they had to shoot. (laughs) So when he says, you know, if I had words... And, and wow. everything he says there, it's completely ad-lib. Wow, that's really and amazing. He meant he had Holy no words. cow. He had no that's like that. one of the best parts of the movie. If is the middle word in life. That's amazing. It is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are they going to say man. about him, man? That he was a good Very man. Nice. That he was a wise man. Wrong. You. So hey, um, I need to wrap it up. But are there any uh, final uh, comments you'd like to make about dialogue and writing good dialogue? Um, I would say you've all been very insightful. Good to read guidelines. Don't live and die by them. Make it your own. I mean, you could you could fit anything into a. You can put those guidelines and find good enough. Point. You can apply Good it to point. almost anything in CBC here. It matches. I told you. Um, so, yeah, don't. Uh, it's good to read them to open your mind, but uh, you don't live and die by them. I agree. The best writers uh, break all the rules, but they know how and why. And one thing I would like to remind readers and uh, audience members. Uh, it is important to ground your readers with exposition. Um, a scene of pure dialogue rarely, if ever, occurs. So always have something happening somewhere. Okay? That's important for me. I, I need to know where something's happening, even huh. if it's in a formless void. I need to know that it's a formless void. My uh, two cents worth uh, to this topic would be this. 
uh, since we're talking about dialogue and the craft of dialogue, if you get to a point where you are uh, faced with a need to write a whole bunch of dialogue, I would suggest going to some of the greatest playwrights as sources of inspiration. I'm not talking about Shakespeare, but I'm talking about, you know, I've already mentioned him, David Mamet, but other guys like Tom Stoppard, uh, you know, Edward Albee, um, Oh, yeah. Reread Death of a Salesman, for instance. No, no, sure. I'm talking in the modern. I'm not talking stuff that you need to translation class to understand. But like flip through flip through Death of a Salesman. Like if you want to talk about brevity, which you brought up at the very beginning, and you want to talk about or, or what I'm sorry, not what you want to talk about, but one of my arguments is you know, playwrights have so so little tools to work with. All they have really is dialogue. They don't have uh, a whole bunch of uh, tricks up their sleeves when it comes to novelists. They don't have a whole bunch of distraction tools like a filmmaker does. They're not an essayist. They're not uh, writing a thousand page textbook for uh, some kind of college. They have so little, um, so little ways to distract the audience. So basically everything comes down to dialogue and flip through death of a salesman. Again, look at how tight these lines are. There is so little preaching there's so little long-winded monologues the few that do pop up are almost so rare that that alone makes you pay closer you, you move for a couple inches farther down your seat to listen to this monologue because it's so rare in the longer form uh it, it's inspiring like i actually when it comes to dialogue i find uh playwrights probably have a better grasp of that form than novelists or film writers, filmmakers. So go go to the go to good sources would be my suggestion to your students and to your listeners. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think it's a good point. Theater is expensive, so and it's risky, riskier than books these days. Um, also, stand-up comics, because it looks like they're just speaking, uh, you know, spontaneous, casual, unconcerned with outcomes. But if you follow a comic around from club to yeah, club, yeah, every word is there. It's for entirely a There's nothing memorized. there by chance. You 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 watch any of the documentaries or any of the interviews with any yeah. of the, you know greatest stand-up comics, and they will tell you, like Jerry Seinfeld has gone at uh, on at length about his process, and it's literally that it's. He writes something, he, he gives it a go, he tests it, and he figures out what works and what doesn't work and rewrites it. But then eventually he gets to a script where every time he's on stage, he is delivering the same words in the same cadence, in the same breaks, the same stops. Like it's, it's performance art, like the whole thing. And part of the skill is making it look natural, making it look like you're just yeah. shooting from the hip. But no, you're not. You're not. That's why they call it a routine, you know, getting a routine. And how they deal with hecklers and interruptions in the audience. Some of them, some of them, those hecklers or those disruptions will derail them. Will it's almost like wrestling. It almost for a moment it shows the the artifice. It shows that it's not natural. It shows that they are reading from a memorized script, which uh, disrupts them. And then it's almost like it takes them out of their character and 
rankles them and then they get angry and sometimes lash out like Michael Richards did. He, his career was destroyed for that exact reason. Someone knocked him off his game for half a second. He said a couple stupid things because he was angry and he couldn't get back into character and boom, there goes your career. The good ones can roll with it. The bad ones can't. 